Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 28th, 2022. We seem to be caught in a little bit of a trap, certainly this week. It's become a bit of a, an either-or. Either we're supposed to give up digital technology if we want to be human. That, at least, is according to David Sachs, who has a new book out, who I talked to this week, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. Or, on the other hand, um, if we want to realize supposedly equality, inclusion, and a brighter future, we need to embrace digital technology. Uh, that at least is according to another of my guests this week, Orly Lobel, who teaches law at the University of California at San Diego. She has a new book out, The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future, a very anthropological, uh, anthrocentric uh, title. But I wonder if we can escape this either or. I wrote a piece about it actually this week, and I suspect or at least hope we might be able to with my guest this afternoon. Uh, Karen uh, Bacher is the author of a, an intriguing new book and project, The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants. It's part of a an innovative new science of acoustic ecology or bioacoustics. And I'm uh, honored that uh, Karen in person is joining us. She's um, teaching this year at Harvard University. So she's currently speaking from Cambridge, although she normally lives in Vancouver uh, on the West Coast, just north of here uh, in Canada. Uh, Karen, tell me more about this incredibly intriguing project, The Sounds of Life. Uh, this is your new book, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants. We're a little lost, I think, these days as a species. Is it helping us find ourselves or maybe lose ourselves even more? So digital technologies are often associated with our alienation from nature and from one another in a world of misinformation and surveillance capitalism. That argument might make sense, but I make a different argument in the book that digital technologies properly wielded can bring us closer to nature, can reconnect us um, with other species and with the planet itself. And I base this argument on uh, several thousand research articles across a new field called digital bioacoustics. It's been around for about 10 years. And that, that field basically entails taking the same technologies you have in your smartphone, uh, miniaturized recorders that are now lightweight, automated, portable, very cheap. You can build one yourself if you had the inclination, order the open source audio moth online. And at home for less than $100, you too could be a digital bioacoustician tuning in to some of the amazing sounds made by other species. The core secret here is that most of these sounds have been inaccessible to us until recently because they are made at frequencies we cannot hear. But digital recording plus artificial intelligence unlocks that world of non-human sound. And we're learning pretty amazing things about non-human communication, 
and language. And we're also on the brink of breaking the barrier of interspecies communication with these technologies. Wow, you slipped that one in at the end, Karen. That's a that's astonishing. I mean, if it's true, uh, you mean we'll be able to talk to the animals and plants, or the animals and plants will be able to talk to us, or vice versa? Uh, both. Uh, but let me back up a little bit. Um, species across the planet are already engaged in lots of conversations we're not aware of. There's um, a great experiment done by Yossi Yaval in Tel Aviv that basically played the sound of buzzing bees for plants, <laughs> uh, flowers notably that respond by increasing the production of nectar, making it sweeter. There's acoustic attunement between bees and flowers, also between pollinating bats and vines. So there's lots of sonic information being exchanged between species all the time. But when we think about interspecies communication between us and non-humans, we're usually interested in charismatic megafauna like elephants and whales or iconic species like honeybees, dolphins, and that's where researchers are focusing their efforts. So there's a team at MIT in Berkeley, for example, decoding sperm whales sound. There's another team that's putting together a dictionary in East African elephant. Um, there's a researcher in Berlin that has actually encoded uh, honeybee sounds that were learned with an AI algorithm, encoded those sounds into a robot, and that robot has successfully spoken back to the beehive. So for honeybees, we have already broken the barrier of interspecies communication. It's astonishing. Well, and I know you were just out here. There's a, there's a group in San Francisco, the Earth Species Project, uh, when working with the Internet Archive that are focused on this. Might we hear stuff, Karen, that we don't want to hear? Uh, we did a show earlier today with Martin Rees, a very distinguished astronomist, um, uh, astronomer. And um, we, of course, talked about whether or not there was life outside uh, the Earth. And one of the things we discussed was whether we wanted to bump into that life. What are we hearing? So species across the tree of life are engaged in continuous conversation. Uh, they're hearing lots of things we can't hear. And then as we're tuning in to these sounds with our digital bioacoustics devices, the scientists are now placing all over the earth from the depths of the ocean to the highest mountaintops from the Arctic to the Amazon, we're hearing some pretty amazing things. One of the things we're, we're learning about is the complex social behaviors of animals that we previously knew very little about. I'll give an example of bats, you know, often associated with, you know, blood-sucking vampires, creatures of the night. We knew about their echolocation abilities, but we sort of assumed that was it. But now with these digital bioacoustics devices, we've been able to tap into the hidden language of bats. And this is all research that's come out in the last five years. Ima you know, imagine recording literally millions of vocalizations in a bat cave, um, training AI algorithms to identify individual bats making these sounds. Uh, scientists often use um, individual tags that are a bit like air tags on individual bats. So you can map out who's saying what. And what you get is an elaborate bat dictionary. And from this, we have learned that bats remember favors they hold grudges they have individual names they use language that they have individual names of the, they have individual names they have, indiv they, have, they have vocal call signatures that distinguish between individuals kin and family affiliation they trade food for sex they socially distance and go quiet when ill 
they they are very complex beings. Mother bats babble to their baby bats, much like the way human parents babble at their babies as part of a vocal learning phase. And the, the babbling baby bats uh, eventually learn adult bat language, just like our human babies. So the, the, the amazing, you know, rich social lives of bats and culture, because they have these complex family songs, they sing and pass from one generation to the next, all of this would be inaudible to the naked human ear. We can't hear it, but our computers can. And that's the kind of thing we're learning. So digital technology, while it's supposed to be alienating and separating and all the rest of it, um, is actually reminding us that we're not alone as a species, that we're not quite as distinct as a species as we hoped or feared. Is that right? Yeah, it certainly undercuts human exceptionalism about the claims that humans alone possess language. Of course, that hinges on how you define language. Certainly, lots of species convey much more complex information through acoustic communication than we previously understood, including species that we once thought were mute, that, that we once thought were deaf. Turtles, for example. Um, Scientists simply didn't know how vocal they were and, and the very cool things they're doing when they communicate acoustically. But this stretches a lot further across the tree of life. Uh, researchers have found that plants can listen to sounds and with a high degree of discernment, distinguish between those sounds and respond accordingly. I am not making this up. This is not science fiction. These are replicable, robust experiments you could do in the lab if so inclined. Even very simple organisms like coral larvae, which have no central nervous system, have very, very sensitive hearing and are able to learn amazing things from their environment. I'll just give one example. Steve Simpson at the University of Exeter in the UK has done a series of experiments demonstrating that coral larvae can here, they're placed in sort of a choice chambers. It's like a maze in an aquarium and they can swim different directions towards or away from different sounds. And the coral larva can sense the difference between white noise and the sounds of reefs. They can distinguish between the sounds of healthy and unhealthy reefs. And they can even distinguish the sound of their home reef. The sound that their reef makes when the coral are born must be unique. We don't know how. They must imprint on this sonic information in a kind of coral lullaby. They're washed out to the ocean, wide open ocean for weeks, months at a time. But somehow, and Steve has also done tracking experiments with coral larvae out in the open ocean on the Great Barrier Reef. These little tiny coral larvae with no ears, no central nervous system, can hear the sound of their home reef and swim back towards it over miles of open ocean. So their, their sense of hearing is actually phenomenal. It's much more precise and accurate and exquisite than our own. I have to admit, none of this surprises me. Um, but what's particularly ironic, I guess perhaps even tragic, is that we've invented technology that allows us to listen to nature, to plants, to other species, just at the time that we seem to be destroying them. Um, is there something particularly tragic about that for you, Karen? The, 
I mean, technology is both a, a, a useful tool and, and a weapon, and it's, it's you know, it's a, the Promethean impulse, right? It's both inspiring and terrifying. We're opening up these new worlds of acoustic communication that I might add are not actually new because a lot of these insights have long been known by Indigenous communities and held as Indigenous knowledge. And in many cases, Western scientists are simply rediscovering what these Indigenous communities have long known. So, but as we use these digital technologies to, to listen in, what we're often hearing are uh, the ebbing, the ebbing of these sounds, whether climate change is silencing the oceans, coral reefs, you know, coral reefs, you can think of like um, ghost towns of the sea, right? Um, many places on earth are being disrupted sonically by climate change. And many places are being disrupted by noise pollution. Um, at the same time, the you know there is a silver lining because there's a lot we can do, and there's a lot that scientists are doing to use acoustic enrichment and noise pollution abatement to slow down, maybe even reverse uh, ex extinction or biodiversity loss in some places. I'll tell you about a couple cool experiments that give. I don't want to give false hope. But I don't want to. Be yeah, don't give away everything in the book. Sounds like oh, we want people, oh, we want people oh, oh, to buy the book. So let's I'll make just sure you keep a few. Tell secrets. you, I'll just tell you that they're doing some very cool music therapy for the environment. That when you read about it, will blow your mind about what. Are how these your sound artists that you 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 feature on your website? Absolutely. So, you know, there's a, there, this is a really rich field. There's bioacousticians that listen to individual organisms. There's eco-acousticians that listen to entire soundscapes. They're like the radiologists of the acoustic world. And then world. there are the sound And the sound artists, to... sound walks, where you can do very beautiful walks in nature yourself, uh, you know, listening. You, you'd be tremendously surprised when you head outside and actually start listening and realizing all the sounds you've just been filtering out. Symphonic, would that be the right word to describe this new world? Yes, but symphonic in an incredibly diverse way. I mean, you know, the humpback whales are like the opera singers. The bowhead whales are like the jazz singers. It's symphonic, and yet there's a bit of hip-hop in there. The, the, the variety is astounding. And the, um, you know, the, the accessibility is now easy. Um, so because lots of examples in the book. Some artists have, I don't know if they've guessed this, but they've imagined it, the French, the great French composer uh, Olivier Messiaen, He's famous for his bird song, for his piano work. Um, are there other artists, Karen, who guess this before you actually have figured out a way to listen to other species in nature? There are, and I talk about some of them in, in the book, who, um, you know, translate the sounds of oceans or the sounds of glaciers into music. The earth itself has a geophony. So the earth itself makes infrasound that if we could hear it is like a, a drumming heartbeat of our planet. Animals can hear these sounds. They can hear the infrasound generated by tornadoes and hurricanes and calving glaciers, even waves crashing over continental shelves. So the amazing thing is, you know, art is often like prefigurative social theory. Composers have been sensing the symphony of the planet's sounds, the geological sounds, as well as the biological sounds, the birds, the, you know, the creatures that creep and crawl upon the earth. 
I, th I think though that that has remained slightly esoteric knowledge. And what I wanted to bring to the public conversation is the fact that there's now a really large and robust amount of scientific evidence that demonstrates how, how rich, um, how complex, how intriguing the world of, of non-human communication is. And that's now accessible to everyone with these digital apps that I talk about in the book. You mentioned indigenous peoples. I know in your book, you, you write quite a lot about the Inupiat peoples of uh, North America um, and the Bering Sea. Uh, the Canadians tend to have a little bit more respect for the indigenous tradition than the Americans, which isn't saying much. Did these peoples get it? Could they hear nature even without digital tools, Karen? Yeah, I mean, to start off, I would say that Canada has its own very troubled history with yeah, I, I know. colonialism. I mean, so we've done some shows that's, on uh, Indigenous, we, yeah, yeah. Your, your own crime. So I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not but, but you still have a little bit more, um, op you're a little bit more open-minded, I think, than, than the U.S. generally. Although there's some, been some interesting work on Indigenous peoples of, of the U.S., which we've covered. Mm. But anyway, go on. I, I would, so I would just say that the best um, way to work your way through that question is to go to read some Indigenous scholars like Robin Wall Kimmerer, her book Braiding Sweetgrass is Beautiful, or Dylan Robinson, whose book Hungry Listening is a really interesting take on these questions from an Indigenous perspective. In, in, in my book, The Sounds of Life, I do talk about lots of examples of where Indigenous communities were able to guide Western scientists. And in the case of the Inupiat in Barrow, Alaska, they had a long centuries-long practice of listening to whales, a, a deep um, ceremonial and spiritual relationship with whales, you know, putting the wooden oar to your uh, jaw and listening, using that like a listening device to hear the jungle. It's like a jungle under the ice, the bohas and the seals and, you know, all the noises. You wouldn't believe how noisy it is under there. And the Inupiat with a very fine honed sense could distinguish not only different animals, but um, what they were up to and through painstaking work guided Western scientists to rediscover um, a lot of these insights and really overturning whale science um, in, in the process. And so that deep listening intertwined with digital listening provides us with some really great guideposts for how to do this in an ethical way with a real sense of responsibility to place yeah, the place is interesting. It, it requires us to rethink geography, which some historians are already doing. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Bathsheba Demuth. Mm -hmm. um, she has a wonderful new book out on an environmental history of the Bering Straits. And actually, we did another interview with Demuth and Kerry Arsenal, who both suggest that we need to learn to tell effective stories about the environment. I guess Yours isn't an effective story or maybe a song. It's a different way of thinking and of telling all these stories, isn't it? Mm, Beth Shiba Demuth is a fantastic writer and that her work is beautiful. Um, inspired by writers like that, what I've tried to do with this book is um, not only tell an accessible story that even a high school student could read, but also bring into the actual writing, the prose and the prosody, a sense of the the kind of vitality and the rhythm of uh, the sounds of nature. So the book is, you know, it's a scientific book. There are over a thousand articles cited and 4,000 researchers, but it doesn't read like that. It reads like um, 
a bit of a hymn to nature. You know, learning to listen is one of the first acts of love. And I hope this book encourages people to listen and to fall in love a bit again with nature. Yeah, the hymn idea, I think, is important. Um, we've done a number of shows on trees and forests, books about learning to listen, not maybe literally in the way you write about it in Sounds of Life, but more just the, the metaphorical idea of, of listening. Is there something broader going on, um, Karen, in our culture when it comes to all this? I mean, obviously, you're doing some remarkable work, but a lot of other very important books and thinkers and writers in this broader area not sure if you're familiar with Ed Yong's uh, work. He has a new book out, An Immense World, mm, How okay. Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden ra Realms. Great book. Another yeah. great book. Carl Safina, another mm -hmm. pioneer in this space, Becoming Wild. Something going on more broadly that we are, you know, to borrow a, a word from George Monbiot, another of our guests recently, uh, is there a, a regenesis going on, not just in how we treat the soil, but how we treat nature, potentially at least? Mm -hmm. uh, those are all wonderful writers. And I think there is a bigger movement that I think is analogous to the great changes that took place several hundred years ago with the Enlightenment. So if you cast your mind back, the many discoveries, but notably the, the discovery of optics, both the telescope and microscope, led us to see the world in fundamentally new ways. The telescope into the heavens and back into time, if we looked far enough, the microscope into entirely new microbial worlds that we had no idea about. And at the time did not have an idea that would lead to the discovery of DNA and you know other marvel, the ability to manipulate the biological code of life. So the, the optics enabled us to basically extend our human sense of sight like a prosthetic but most importantly they enabled us to really extend our imaginations bioacoustics our ability to listen to nature does something similar for our sense of hearing and it further decenters the human it undermines human exceptionalism it leads us to a greater sense of biocentrism as we begin listening across the tree of life and i I believe, and the reason I spent seven years researching and writing this book is I believe that this technology will be a, a gateway into uh, a revolution in science and, and public understanding as significant as, as that of some elements of the Enlightenment. It's a, a very exciting idea, Karen. But on the other hand, pessimists like myself might interpret it slightly differently. What happens if we get hold of all this technology and as we as a species tend to do, want to lecture nature. What happens if we just want to tell them about ourselves? What happens if we turn nature and other species into another version of Twitter or TikTok and all we want to do is self-express? We're missing the conversation. There doesn't seem to be much evidence that we as a species are particular. I mean, you are and some of your colleagues and friends, but the majority of humans don't seem to really want to communicate. My guess with nature, even if the technology is there, why are you so confident that this could result in a new enlightenment rather than a new apocalypse? Well, technology is always 
deeply ambivalent for humans, right? It can be a, a useful tool for conservation or it could be a weapon for domestication and further exploitation. The technologies I'm talking about could be used for precision hunting, for precision fishing, to, to ask other creatures to do our bidding, to subject them, God forbid, to misinformation or disinformation. There's lots of negative possibilities. I don't dwell on them in the book because... Um, well, first of all, these uh, technologies are not out there in the wild. Um, you can't really go and, and get the, download these AI algorithms and, and, and start trying to talk to bats or whales yet. Some, and I think safeguards are going to be put in place. But beyond that... Who buy it I, when you say safeguard? We've heard that one before. They mm -hmm. never are put in place. Who's mm -hmm. going to put them in place? Well, um, in this case, the, the community of bioacousticians working on these topics has safeguards in place for data privacy, data ownership. Here, oh, by the way, Indigenous data sovereignty provides a really interesting set of guideposts because of their framework, which holds that this data is not meant to be publicly shared, that there are protocols about who accesses it, and that we can't simply go harvesting this data willy-nilly from territories around the world, many of which are under the stewardship of Indigenous peoples. And there's a lot of work going on at the United Nations Environment Program uh, at other levels to make sure that data is safeguarded. But I will admit, and I do note in the book, the concerns that are, are totally legitimate about potential misuse of these technologies. And that's partly why I wrote the book mm. to, to stimulate a public conversation about this, about the way in which conservationists are gonna take these technologies on board. But I will say one thing, and that is, um, Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. It may be that the dire outcome is more likely, but I don't think there's uh, any ethical choice, but to try and strive for the positive outcome, which in this case is the use, as I outlined in the book, of bioacoustics to achieve really measurable, concrete conservation outcomes that protect endangered species and ecosystems. And there are, always, there are already some pilot projects in place that are doing this. We need to scale those up. We need to support them. And they could make a very big difference in turning around the biodiversity crisis. Do you fear that there are startup companies in Silicon Valley or in Vancouver or in Boston who might figure out a way to use, borrowing a, a word from Silicon Valley, monetize all this and in the way that you know Google monetized our personal information or Facebook monetized our urge to be social or Amazon monetized uh, shopping? Is there a, a similar danger of monetization of all this? There has been engagement of big tech in bioacoustics in part because there are similarities between the technical problems posed by human acoustic data sets and non-human acoustic data sets. So there's actually been some support for the for bioacoustics researchers from you know Google Earth or Microsoft's AI for Earth program. Do I think they're nefarious? No. Do I think that they are sequestering large amounts of environmental data now, even in the absence of a monetization strategy in the hopes of future monetization? Yes. Again, that's something I draw attention to in the book. Interestingly, there's a now a large-scale movement afoot to to uh, basically set out a defensive mechanism whereby environmental data is a global commons run under the auspices. There's a coalition on digital environmental sustainability. 
some of the global internet, um, like the, uh, the World Data Forum is getting on board to kind of ring fence environmental data and say that should stay part of the global commons. We shouldn't be monetizing or privatizing that environmental data. We'll see how that ends up. But there's certainly a pushback um, on the engagement of big tech and no obvious monetization strategies at the moment. So maybe we have a little space in which to carve out a kind of global environmental data commons that would be used for the public good and for environmental good. Yeah, that public space is essential. Finally, Karen, if if this technology matures, uh, your, your subtitle suggests it brings us closer to the worlds of animals and plants. Uh, you've suggested it might enable conversation. What, what do you think we could talk to the plants and other species about? Well, I suggest two things. One is that, and there's a large number of apps available to individuals you can some of them you can get on your smartphone that just enable you to go out and listen and and engage in sound walks immerse yourself in nature's sounds if if nothing else the science has shown this is really good for your mental and physical and emotional well-being it's just a kind of nature therapy can't hurt hurt others might help you why not Beyond that, I think within 10 to 15 years, we are going to see, as I mentioned, dictionaries being assembled in a few key animal languages, sperm, whalish, elephant, honeybee. And we're going to be learning a lot more about these species in order to be able to better protect them. And it cultivates empathy to be able to see behaviors in other species that are so mm. similar. Well, that's Ed Young's argument about empathy. Yeah. Uh, it's also... Absolutely. Becky Higgins, she writes about that as well as, of course. So this is another way to cultivate empathy. And I'm so glad to see a chorus of books emerging with the same theme. My entry point into that is bioacoustics. Ed Young's book is wonderful and it talks about other aspects yeah. of animal senses. And so this, you know, this is a great moment to be having that what public conversation. Not, um, empathetic. Uh, some creatures aren't. We did Mm. A show with Cy Montgomery about hawks, a different way of love. Uh, she has a new book out, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. That's uh, a beautiful nature book. Nature is not always quite as empathetic as we would like, isn't it? No, no. As Lynn Margulis used to say, nature is a tough bitch. You know, we're not, there, there are teeth and claws out there. There are food chains. Um, you know, some uh, are born to eat. Others are born to be eaten. So I'm not pretending that, that this is all, um, you know, a gentle encounter with nature. But it's nature in all of its complexity. And um, glory, I guess. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. There's a real sense of the need to relearn of uh, a, a very human a truth that we have lost about the need to live within nature's limits and encounters with other species and how they interact is one way to learn that lesson. Yeah, and it reminds me of the birth of nationalism in the, in the late 18th, middle of the 19th century, which was accompanied by the publication of all sorts of dictionaries, which at the time were considered quite radical, the rediscovery of indigenous languages, although mostly they were the invention. You're suggesting a, a, a similarly um, innovative time with dictionaries, but these are not the languages of humans. They're the languages of other species and other beings that will be put on paper. Is that right? 
Yeah, think about it like a transition from the Internet of Things to the Internet of Earthlings. Essentially, these dictionaries are being revealed because we're using the same technologies, sensors, satellites, drones, bioacoustics, to link up non-humans to our digital world along with ourselves. So what you've got actually is two great transformations occurring, digital transformation and environmental change. Both of these are exponential changes. And unless we get to grips with how they're interrelated and steer them in a sustainable path, we're in deep trouble. We're already in deep trouble, Karen. So that's given, but maybe you can get us out of it. Your new book, Sounds of Life, how digital technology is bringing us closer to the worlds of animals and plants is is really fascinating and it comes on top of all sorts of other books as you say it might suggest a new enlightenment a new moment in the history of our species or perhaps the end in a way of us as a separate species it's really fascinating stuff and all achieved through digital which has history uh, which over the last couple of years or over the last decade has got a bad press so particularly interesting congratulations karen then on the book i'm sure there'll be many more i think we need a, a big history book from you or somebody else on what this all means more broadly uh which i'm sure will come from you or someone so we'll have to have you back on the show what else are you reading these days karen i'm rereading thomas moore's care of the soul which is now 30 years old which mm. is a very beautiful book about how everyday actions can help cultivate a sense of calm and grace and presence in a, our busy lives and our troubled world, particularly appropriate, I think, in the current climate. And um, I'm also, and I hope your readers take a look at this, rereading Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, a very beautiful book, much needed uh, about Indigenous perspectives on plants, on plant people, um, well worth people's time.